This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Come to the Home Depot this month and you'll learn a thing or two. Actually, three with three free do-it-yourself workshops. Learn how to grow an edible raised garden bed, how to build a catch-all nightstand organizer, even how to install wall tile. See, it's never too late to learn something new. Register today at homedepot.com slash workshops for a free do-it-yourself workshop near you. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. E-cigs don't burn tobacco leaves, and they come in lots of flavors. That's what tobacco companies tell you. Here are three things tobacco companies don't say. One, many teens don't know their flavored e-cigs have nicotine. Two, nicotine is a poison that can rewire the teen brain. Three, 80% of kids who tried vaping did it because of the flavors. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Get into it, man. You know, like I, you know, I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview, transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign and 4th District, hosted on the Crux and the Call. Justin, it's another week. Uh, it's it's April, but it's still March Madness. How, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Uh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> can, we, can we go to the next subject? <laughs> nah, my, uh, my bracket is in, is in dismay. It's, it's, it's a bad look. Um, I had a couple teams that just really let me down. Of course, I made the right choices, but the teams just didn't do what they were supposed to. Summer is closer than you think. So are Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot with up to 40% off appliance special buys, like an LG mega capacity top load washer and electric dryer for just $5.98 each. That'll save loads. But hurry, just like summer, they'll be gone before you know it. Today is the day for doing with Memorial Day savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dryer extra. See store for details. Valid through June 5th. Supposed to do uh, a la Duke, uh, Florida State, Tennessee, and I, I think I may have one team that's left. So let's move on, man. It's not not all that important. Yeah, the lack of follow through these days is just unacceptable. Uh, yeah, you trust you put your trust in these teams, and they just they just let you down, man. <laughs> yeah, I. I uh, was bragging to my wife. So Melissa and I are in a bracket was bragging to her all weekend that I had the Auburn uh, pick only to realize that at the last second before I finalized my bracket, I got weak knees and I, I picked UNC over Auburn. Uh, so I had to, had to roll that back a little bit. Uh, so yeah, that hurts. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, looking forward to final four, uh, next week, we have a lot to discuss on the podcast uh, this week. And Justin, it's been the religious rhetoric coming out of the Democratic primary has been 
you know, a vast departure from 2016. And, you know, in part because of the number of candidates, we've just heard a ton about faith so far in this primary. One of the leading voices uh, has been Pete Buttigieg, who on The View, Morning Joe, his CNN town hall was talking about uh, his faith as an Episcopalian in uh, several of those occasions, including an interview with the Washington Post. He called for a revival of the religious left. He said that this country needs, uh, needs, he hoped to see a new religious left that was focused on compassion and on Matthew 25. Uh, Justin, we're also seeing Cory Booker talk about talk about faith and going to sort of religious left, uh, quote unquote, forums to talk about it. Even Elizabeth Warren, uh, it, it's it's uh, it, it, it might be and uh, a big part of the narrative of this campaign. You know, I will note that about eighty to ninety percent of the faith remarks that we're seeing from these candidates are when they're asked directly about their faith, and so and so you know part of this is I'm not sure the story quite yet is that these candidates are talking more about faith than ever before. Uh, it's that the media is more interested, and that you know at the very least these candidates are uh, prepared with something of an answer. But Justin, let's talk about this religious left question. Um, do you think that we're seeing a revival of the religious left? And if so, you know, what, what does that, what does that mean? Uh, both in the context of the presidential primary, but also, you know, the broader political landscape. Yeah, we'll have to wait to see. We're certainly seeing a revival, as you mentioned, about in, in the rhetoric and, and talking about it. And and honestly, Pete, Pete Buttigieg is, you know, he might be the most natural uh, politician in the race right now. Huh. And he seems to be very substantive. Um, obviously, he's a member of the, he's the mayor of, of South Bend, Indiana, a very talented politician, seems to be substantive. I've never seen him come off as insincere. Mm. I've never seen him come off as uninformed. And, and, and I can't say that about all the other candidates, unfortunately. <laughs> if anyone can sell this religious left, left concept, I think it's him. Mm. Now, while I disagree with some of his uh, doctrinal views, uh, I must say that he is studied. Uh, that he is astute uh, when it comes to religion. And I can absolutely uh, respect that. Furthermore, more, I agree with him when he talks about the religious right needing to be confronted, uh, needing to be called out and opposed in many instances, uh, opposed for the history of harshness, uh, how they've condoned and perpetuated racism and and honestly, uh, for uh, their support of Trump. You know, they've shown an addiction to power that is bigger than principles. They've shown an addiction to this politics uh, of self-interest that I've talked about before, uh, which has not been compassionate or considerate towards uh, the suffering of others. And on so on that point, uh, I agree with them. And I think there needs to be a resurgence or, you know, people to step up and kind of call that to question a little more. The problem I have with the religious left is that substantively, it looks exactly like the sec- secular left, just in religious religious garb. Mm. Um, it doesn't challenge the hard left on abortion. It doesn't challenge the hard left on religious liberty or the worship of self-expression. You know, while it may be fluent in religious language and it understands the symbolism, and I appreciate also that it asked the Democratic Party to be more inclusive about how they talk about religion, substantively, it clearly still rejects Judeo-Christian values outside of social justice, right? 
uh, in the article that he did. And I, what was the article in? I can't remember what he recently did an article where he was talking about how the religious right put Trump in office. The religious left can get him yeah, out. And, and he talked a lot about. Yeah, Washington Post. He talked a lot about getting rid of religious dog dogma, right? Getting a, away from that dogma. But it seems that we talk about getting rid of, rid of that dogma only to make way for ideological dogma, right. which was clear in an interview he did last week, the same week as when this article came out, where he stood in support of late term abortions. So substantively, I'm wondering what's really the difference between the religious left and the secular left, the secular left. And when I talk about secular left, I'm not saying everything they do is wrong or that everything they do is bad. The secular left already talks about compassion. They talk about the poor. They talk about social justice. The secular left already does that. So what I'm asking is, what is really the difference, right? And when it comes to policy, right, is the religious left simply going to say amen after they vote for late term abortions? Are they going to say hallelujah uh, after they voted against religious liberty? Is that supposed to make a big difference? Right. Are they going to speak in tongues or something after they support something like California's new sex uh, sex education policy that imposes gender identity ideology on children in an effort to really uh, use public education to indoctrinate children? That's what I'm getting at. Like outside of the language, what is the difference? Because that's the only difference that I can really see. And that the theology that's being pushed through this is really allows us to be our own masters as long as we're quote unquote inclusive. And that's not really the, the gospel that the and campaign follows or that I personally follow. Um, you know, the biblical worldview is certainly about justice. It's certainly about love and caring for the poor, but it's more than that. Right. It's also about obedience. It's also about self-denial. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also about transformation, personal transformation. It does not see individual self-expression, no matter how sincere as sovereign. And so all the all this talk without those things is really cheap grace. And I was uh, you know, I've been reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks a lot about that. Uh, It's about more than than just love. Those things are very important. But the the gospel is more than that. So, So for me, here's the deal. When in conflict, either your Christianity will control your political decisions or your ideology will control your your decisions. My criticism of the religious right and the would be religious left is that ideology seems to win that battle in most cases and that faith is kind of rationalized around the ideology. The and campaign, I think, is different in that we put the faith principles above the ideology and therefore we can't help but challenge the ideological right and the ideological left on their sacred cows. I don't see the left, the, the religious left doing that when it comes to the ideological left. And that's my yeah. issue. No, I, I think... I think that's right. And I've seen it in D.C. where, you know, both on the right and on the left, uh, you have people who came to this town, you know, all fired up for good reasons to to live out their faith in the public square. And yet they end up getting uh, so used to the sort of political coalition making, so used to translating their their policy views motivated by faith into secular terms and to uh, accommodating themselves to get the broadest sort of reach possible that they, many, forget what got them here in the first place. Uh, they, they, they actually start grounding the things that were originally grounded in faith in other expressions. And so the, the question, as you said, Justin, is, you know, what, 
what is the what does the religious left have to offer that isn't already being offered uh, by the secular left? And that could look that could look like a, you know a lot of different things. I mean, I think part of the promise of the religious left is to push the Democratic Party to focus on poverty more explicitly and with more focus. Uh, but but then you know, like you said, Justin, you know. At, at what point does it become a misdirection to be using religious rhetoric, to be going to churches and quoting from scripture and, and then pursuing policies that uh, go against the, the the very doctrine of these churches that you're seeking votes from and, and that you're sort of that you're sort of appealing to them on a religious basis for? Yeah, I mean Bernie. Bernie is talking about the poor now, right? Right. I mean, so there are there are people there talking about the poor, and that's great. And I will stand shoulder to shoulder with with Pete or anybody else who's doing that. The question is, are we really just putting religion on policy that Democrats were going to support anyway? Yeah. Because what I what I worry about is it seems like an effort to some extent. I'm not questioning his veracity. Sure. Um, but it seems like an effort to get Christians more comfortable with rubber stamping secular progressive values. And it uses the religious right as this foil to do that. Right. Like it talks about going talks about going against rich white men, which I guess is supposed to make, you know, people of color automatically supported or whatever. All the while, when you look at what's happening in, in these spaces, they're imposing a very elite Western secular ideology on people of color. And we've talked about religious exclusion and some of our friends and what's happened to them when they didn't want to go along with that ideology. Right. Um, and so I, what I think we'll find is that the religious left isn't really new. Like there's there's not anything I, I don't I hope and maybe there hopefully there is something that they're bringing to the table, but I'm not seeing it because the religious left. I mean, this is not new. I mean, they're in the Bible. Right. I mean, if if the religious right looks familiar because they look like the Pharisees, someone could say that the religious left looks familiar because they look like the Sadducees to some extent. Right. And we know that the Sadducees were privileged. The Sadducees were elite. Right. They rejected doctrine. They didn't challenge the values of the day because the values of the day justified them. So in the article, he mentions the religious right as the Pharisees kind of. Well, someone can say that the Sadducees part about the religious left and they have to show that they are different than the secular left, that they're not just they're not just rationalizing their religion around what the secular left is giving them. And until then, it's just hard for me to buy it. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're going to see. I mean, part of what you're saying. Right. And I think, you know, Pete's been pretty good on on this count and others not so much, which is, you know, whenever faith is brought up. Are you talking about how you're not like the religious right, or are you saying something about how faith has actually motivated you in a positive way? You know, is is your faith right. always in reaction to what somebody else is doing, or do you think that there's a a positive role for faith uh, in your life and in the life of this country? And and we're just going to have to see that play out. I, I think one real test of this is going to be if it remains just rhetoric, or whether some of these campaigns higher up and whether some of these campaigns actually uh, integrate faith into into the actual infrastructure of their campaigns or if again you know this is just something that they have an answer for when when CNN asks them we're going to talk more about 2020 when we get back after the break a, a lot is going on we saw the first closing of the FEC deadline, the the campaign contribution deadline uh, this week. And so fundraising numbers are coming out and there's, there's a lot to discuss. This is the Church Politics Podcast. 
We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, we're, uh, I don't think the 2020 field is completely set yet. Definitely on the Democratic side, we're you know continuing to hear rumblings on the Republican side about potentially a more substantial uh, primary uh, candidate getting in against President Trump. There were rumblings about Joni Ernst this past week. And of course, people are looking at John Kasich on the Democratic side. Folks are waiting to see if Joe Biden's going to jump in. And last week it got, people are treating him like he's the front runner already, even though he hasn't jumped in yet. A Nevada lieutenant governor candidate who uh, served as a public official in Nevada um, is politically involved, endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders in 2016 and campaigned on his behalf and now runs uh an advocacy organization, Lucy Flores, wrote an article for The Cut alleging that Joe Biden, when he came to endorse her in her LG race, uh, in a non-sexual way, invaded her personal space by coming up from behind her. And she said, breathing, uh, smelling her hair, kissing the back of her head. And this, of course, has created a uh, a, a bit of a wave of stories. It picks up on a conservative kind of far right accusation against Joe that uh, against Joe Biden, uh, the uh, former vice president, that he often does awkward, inappropriate things with with women that, you know, there are photo galleries. And I even saw a Daily Show clip that that showed various scenes of Biden sort of uh, grabbing, uh, hugging women uh, in a way that some thought was too closely, whispering in their ear. I, I will say, Justin, in, over the last couple of days, we've seen some interesting things come out. Probably the most infamous picture of the vice president um, that, that really st- started in some ways a lot of these stories is with a woman, Stephanie Carter. She is the wife of Ash Carter, the former defense secretary. And for literally years, People have circulated these photos and videos of the vice president at a official event with his hands on both of her shoulders and uh, whispering in her ear, saying that, you know, this woman is clearly uncomfortable. Uh, You look at her face and see, you know, the face of every woman who's had to deal with a a man who uh, who uh, doesn't, you know, respect her privacy and her autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Stephanie Carter wrote a Medium post saying, you know, after years of just hoping this would go away by ignoring it and not feeding, you know, feeding the trolls, essentially, she said, I felt like I finally had to come out and explain. And in the Medium post, she details that her and her husband had actually gone to Joe for counsel as they were dealing with with a personal situation, a, a, a sort of traumatic situation. And so in that very moment, when Everyone's imposing, you know, their views on what's happening. And Stephanie Carter said, Joe Joe Biden, who's a close friend, was actually consoling me. Um, A similar thing happened with uh, a video circulated of Joe Biden with Chris Coons's uh, 13-year-old daughter. And people said, look at him. What is he doing with kissing that child? Uh, Chris Coons has recently come out saying, you know, as a sender from Vice President Biden's home state, uh, my granddaughters have known the Biden family their entire lives. They view Joe at literal, you know, literally as as their uncle, not just you know crazy uncle Joe Biden, but literally he's he's a he's a family figure to them. And she thought the thirteen year old thought nothing of it. So 
this story has has an arc. I think we need to take seriously Lucy Flores' story. I have no reason to doubt that she, or that her personal space that she felt her personal space was invaded. That uh, she felt that what the vice president did was was not right. Uh, we'll see if other stories come out. I think it's uh, again important to note that even Lucy Flores doesn't didn't didn't think it was a sexual encounter. Um, she she thought it was inappropriate. But if, if Joe Biden gets in this race, not only is this going to come up, but uh, it's all tied into uh, wondering about whether he's rock solid from a progressive point of view on Roe v. Wade, which was the point of a New York Times story that came out this week that Joe Biden has uh, not been a reliable vote in every circumstance for the pro-choice community. And therefore, you know, what what is his commitment to women really? So, Justin, with that, I'll, I'll toss it to you, you know, not just on this, although it's important to talk about Biden, because in early polls, which don't mean everything, but they're, they're the data that we have, Joe Biden is the front runner in this race so far, but also, you know, interested to see what you think about how this campaign is is developing. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is uh, I'm with you. I think we should take Flores's um, allegation seriously. I also think we should make the distinction that it uh, was not of a sexual nature, which really gets lost for a lot of people. Once you hear the allegation, I don't know that most people even will see that it wasn't of a sexual nature. Um, And so that's you know, that could be that could be harmful as well. Uh, But we know Joe Joe Biden is awkward. He does things that he shouldn't do. No excuse should be made for it. He shouldn't do those things that make people uncomfortable. But there is a difference between doing something of a sexual nature and harassing someone sexually and doing something that makes them somewhat uncomfortable. He needs to be told about that. He needs to take deliberate deliberate steps to make sure that doesn't happen. But we have to be really careful that we don't conflate the two. And unfortunately, with sometimes with somehow this some of this stuff is reported, people just see the headline. They just see an allegation. And so a lot of people may be thinking that this is a, a sexual allegation if they don't read the whole, you know, read into the whole allegation. And I hope that wasn't by design. Right. Because the truth of the matter is Biden is at the top of every poll right now, whether he'll stay there, who knows. But he's at the top of every poll right now. He hasn't entered the race officially, officially but he's being treated as the front runner, as you uh, mentioned. And when that happens, the you know, these allegations start coming out. The timing of it is interesting, especially since it's not sexual in nature. Uh, it almost seems like somebody could have pulled him aside or there, you know, there could have been a conversation about it rather than making this a huge, a huge deal. If she felt that was necessary, then she she can do that. Uh, however, the way that it's being reported, I think that it needs to be stressed that this was not a sexual encounter it does not make it OK. Um, and if there are sexual encounters that need to come out in that regard, they need to come out and be taken seriously. But we do have to watch how this stuff is reported. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is going to be interesting. You mentioned that folks on the left are you know, saying, well, we don't we're not sure because he's known as a centrist on a lot of in- issues. Right. He's, he's known as compromising and talking to the other side and all that. And what the left is trying to do is say, no, nah, we don't want none of that. We want to make sure on abortion and all these other issues, you're pushed to the left. And that's what it is. It's posturing. And guess what, Christians, for Christians who are Democrats, if you don't do the same and push folks a little bit to the center, then they're going to go to the left. Right. So if we don't make our voices heard. The left, you know, the, the hard left is doing what they're supposed to do. They're pushing the candidates towards their side. There's no counter push. Uh, and so if there's not going to be any counter push during this election, 
then I can almost guarantee you that all the candidates are going to go that way. Because as I said in a civic update not too long ago, we have to stop seeing candidates as much. And this isn't a criticism. I'm not saying this in, in a way to put down politicians, but I don't think we should view them as leaders in the way we do. Because what politicians do uh, for the most part, and not everybody, is they go to where they are pushed, right? So if they're pushed really hard to to defend one position, that's what they're going to do. It's not, there's no wonder that none of the candidates have come out and stood up against late term abortion because they haven't been pushed hard enough to do that, right? Uh, So we have to understand that they're going to follow, you know, they're going to ride the wave. They're going to read the tea leaves. And unless you put up that front to say, no, you're going too far. Here are the standards that we're setting. They're going to keep going, backpedaling, going further, further to the left on all these issues. That's what's happening right now. Uh, We see fundraising is is, is very serious. We saw some of those reports. I think just this morning, this being Monday, uh, Pete Buttigieg raised, I think, $7 million since he announced that he was even looking into it. So he hasn't announced either, but he's raised $7 million, uh, be, just, you know, kind of looking into it and having his exploratory committee look at it. So there's going to be some big numbers raised here. Uh, and again, I can just tell Christians, you have to push, you have to make your voice heard and not just take what the party or you know, what, what the, the election is going to give you, you have to put your voice out there. And if you don't, uh, don't complain about what we end up getting. Yeah. I think just the one thing I'd add is, uh, I haven't seen Elizabeth Warren's numbers come out, but just because we talked about her in last week's episode, there's a, there's a great article from Jonathan Martin and the Steed Herndon, uh, in the New York times that came out over the weekend, uh, that, uh, Elizabeth Warren's finance director has quit her campaign uh, because uh, she made a commitment not just to not raise money from super PACs, but not to do high dollar giving. Uh, and the finance director was, you know, basically said, you know, right. uh, it's a nice sentiment, but but I can't raise enough money off of that. Uh, and, and you know, the New York Times story points out, you know, as we discussed last week. You know, Warren has been one of the most prolific candidates in terms of pushing out ideas and trying to make this a substantive campaign and not one just about personalities. Uh, And and yet the early returns are suggesting uh, that you can't raise uh, a lot of money off of that. And I'm I'm hoping that's not true, but it'll be um, uh, folks should should watch to see what Warren's campaign does and if it changes over the coming weeks in order to. Uh, in order to get some some their legs under them to hopefully last uh, until New Hampshire, which will really be her her make or break moment. That's right. All right, folks, when we get back, uh, just one more uh, uh, conversation topic. We're going to talk about Rahm Emanuel and the Jesse Smollett decision in Chicago, which has been on the minds of a lot of people and will be on our lips in the next segment. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast, and uh, Justin, this has been such a roller coaster of a story. 
as as folks know, or, or as we've discussed on the show before, the Chicago police brought indictments, a grand jury brought indictments against against Jesse Smollett in the case there where he had apparently uh, lied about the circumstances around uh, uh, accused assault or a suggested assault. Last week, the sh- uh, it was announced the prosecutor would drop charges. And so this sort of, in this back and forth story, uh, dropping charges led to uh, people who, you know, were kind of quiet coming back and saying, uh, we were right all along. Look at what's happening with Chicago PD. This was all a, uh, a ruse on behalf of the police department from the jump. Rahm Emanuel did a press conference with the police chief there in Chicago and uh, and was re- was really uh, upset and fired up. He, he suggested that this was a miscarriage of justice uh, and that this would make it harder to uh, to have folks respect the criminal justice system and the law and the police in Chicago uh, because of um, because Jesse was not going to be held accountable for uh, what what the police department is pretty firm on, you know that, that he did. Just I, I want to toss it to you. Uh, it's important to note a lot of people are saying that Rom doesn't have standing to talk about these issues given how he handled the Laquan McDonald uh, situation. Some people would suggest, and I think it's certainly true, particularly among you know Chicagoans, uh, that. Rom's handling of the Laquan McDonald case uh, did as much or more to undermine respect for and trust in the the Chicago PD and Chicago's criminal justice system than than this case. But I also think Rom has a point that it, that uh, dropping charges in such a high profile case send send a certain message. What do you think about uh, what do you think about this? What do the drop charges mean in the Jesse Smollett case? And do you think Rom should have, uh, you know, held a press conference around it? Yeah. So, so I want to jump on your first point. Well, not your first point, but one point first. Um, there's no comparison. No comparing uh, what happened in La- Laquan McDonald case, where there was a cover up of a police shooting, um, and what's going on with Jesse Smollett. No, no comparison of what impact the Laquan McDonald case had on the view of. Uh, law enforcement versus what's going on with Jesse Smollett. So let's be very clear about that. And I do think Rom was somewhat over the top in how he addressed this relative to what went on with Laquan McDonald. So let's be very clear about that. Um, in the same breath, none of that exonerates Jesse Smollett. Um, and so, I, you know, I really didn't even want to talk about this case again, right? I, I think it should be out of the public discourse by now. But instead, it's another example of our broken system. Uh, And that's unfortunate. The state attorney who was handling the Jesse Smollett case after he was indicted by a grand jury decided to drop the charges without telling the police chief, without telling the mayor, um, and did it in a way that was somewhat ambiguous and very questionable, Um, which everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people, including Chicago Democratic strategist David Axelrod, thought was nonsense uh, in, in her first statement. So people just hear. So, you know, the police, the police chief didn't even hear about it. I think he heard about it through other sources. He didn't even hear about it from the state's attorney. And in her first statement, after they dropped the charges, 
she she made some ambiguous reference to his community service and him forfeiting bond. But it didn't say that he actually went through a diversion program. So what it, what her statement allowed his team to do, and it almost seemed like it was by design, and I can't say that for sure. It allowed his team to say he was innocent. But if you're innocent, why would we mention community service and forfeiting your bond? An innocent person doesn't need to do community service. You're still the victim. Why would you have to go do community service the week before, a couple of days before this announcement was made, which is crazy? Why would you forfeit your bond if you're innocent? People, innocent people don't do that. Innocent people also don't go through diversion programs. But instead of making a statement that made it very clear that he had to do that because they felt he was guilty, it was left open ended uh, that he might actually be innocent. And the charges were just dropped as if, you know, there just was no evidence or anything like that. And that was problematic, especially with the background. So the background of this is the state's attorney had conversations with his family. And with some people, some connected people who were connecting her with the family. Uh, and she was initially saying that she was going to recuse herself or take herself out of the case. So when you have a conflict of interest or there's some other uh, ethical conflict, sometimes an attorney will recuse themselves. Right. Um, she was initially supposed to do that. But then come to find out she didn't really recuse herself. And there's and. and after her office made the statement that she was going to recuse herself, they came back and said, we, we were just using that colloquial, colloquially. Uh, it, we didn't really mean recuse. <laughs> so you have a legal you have a legal office using legal terminology. Recuse. Yeah. Yeah. Using legal terminology, but not yeah. in a legal way. Yeah. Come on, man. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. And so in her first statement, she leaves the door open for him to act like he was innocent, even though the diversion program and the fact that he did community service and forfeited his bond say that he was right. guilty. And then somehow the file is closed up. Nobody can get to it. Stuff is erased. And so nobody can see what actually happened, even through an open records request. That is that is not how it's supposed to go. So she comes back after that first statement and writes an article where she said that uh, Smollett was not exonerated uh, and that he was not found innocent, but that prosecuting the case was uncertain. I'm like, uncertain. A lot of cases that go that go through a grand jury where people are indicted are uncertain. How many cases are completely certain, right? Uh, but so she dropped, and then she says something about the the charges weren't that big of a deal anyway, right? Um, and the truth of the matter is that second statement should have been the first statement. And I'm afraid that 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 second statement wasn't the first statement because it seems like people are trying to create the perception that he may have been innocent. And I think that's what a lot of people have a problem with because it makes the the police and every, and all the investigators and all the people that worked hard on this, it makes them look like they didn't do their job or that they were saying stuff that was untrue. Um, the public was led to believe that he might've been innocent and that's a problem. And so you see even the prosecutors association in Illinois came out and, and, and were really, questioning her and saying this is not this is not okay some people saying that she needs to lose her bar license because that's not how you take care of these cases no this wasn't the biggest case ever this is actually a very low uh, felony or something like that it's like the right. lowest felony however it was made such a big deal yeah. in the press when he, when he when he was the victim that it was a case that you have right. to handle properly and it's the case we're, we're seeing a situation where poor people do not get, get yeah. treated like that poor people do not get off like that Especially when it's not necessarily even their first offense. So diversion programs are usually for somebody that's for their first offense. This wasn't his first offense. This wasn't his first time giving false mm -hmm. information to the police. That doesn't happen for poor people. And that's, you know, that's one of the problems that we see. 
it, so it's just tough. I mean, we again, we had communication with the family that probably shouldn't have happened in the way that it did. I do believe Ron. So Ron calls a press conference, really goes in on it. I think he made some good points. But given the history of everything, it was probably yeah. over the top. You can make both points. I don't need know that you needed to call a whole press conference, although she did not handle that properly and not telling him or the police chief that that was going to happen in such a high profile yeah. case. Just not good. As as you can imagine, once again, social media is just a sewer of base discourse yeah. on this issue. Um, and one side is, you know, he should be in jail. He should, you know, he should get the death penalty almost kind of conversation. The other side is only pointing to the questionable um, reputation of the police, which is a factor in this conversation. We can say, well, you know, the Chicago police have a history right. of this, this and that. It does not exonerate Smollett, though. Right. So what you what happens is you have these tribal influences on social media that take up the task of really defending what's almost becoming the indefensible right now. Once someone is identified that's in their tribe, that person can do no wrong or at least they cannot be allowed to be seen as at at fault for anything ever. And so what they want you to do is just pay attention to the police. Don't pay attention to how this could hurt people who really uh, have hate crimes perpetrated against them. Don't pay attention to some of the obviously inconsistencies about his story. You have a you have one of his attorneys going on television saying, "Yeah, he knew the two guys who supposedly attacked him who were black, but uh, maybe they were wearing whiteface or something." Come on, this is a mo- you're making a mockery of the system. And so you can say the Chicago police are a problem, and this does not excuse them for the, from the things that they've done. But we also have to judge this particular case yeah. on its merits, and that's what mobs don't ever want to do. Every time something comes up that implicates somebody in their tribe, the mob is going to defend that person regardless and not weigh the merits of that individual case and what's going on. That's problematic. That's being partial. And Christians should not participate yeah. in that at all. That's that's right on. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Like you said, we didn't want to discuss this case, you know, uh, this episode. Hopefully we don't have to discuss it uh, again. Uh, but it does raise some really critical, really critical issues. All right. I guess just to send us out, Justin, now that we're down to four possible teams of winning the NCAA championship. Do you, do you think one of us might be able to to, to pick the right winner? Do you, do you have a do you have a pick of who's going to come out on top? From the looks of it, I'm not sure that we're qualified. <laughs> but based on my theorem that I gave last time, that doesn't matter, right? right. So, um, yeah, I'm a, you know who I like for no reason other than I, I want to be tribal. I kind of like Michigan State. Um, yeah. I, I like what they're doing. I like how they're playing. So I'm gonna choose Michigan State. I don't really like Virginia. I don't really have a reason for not liking Virginia. I just don't like yeah. it. And so anybody who likes Virginia, I'd be happy to trash talk you uh, just on that arbitrary basis alone. Yeah, I think Michigan State's a good a good pick. Uh, I think Izzo, uh, Izzo can take them uh, to the championship. You know, I, I do think Virginia coming back from that early exit last year and uh, winning would be, you know, a significant significant uh, accomplishment and comeback story. But but yeah, if I had to pick, I, I'm with you with Izzo. And one more thing before we head out. Um, you know, a little bit heavy hearted today. Um, a, a rapper from the L.A. area, uh, Nipsey Hussle, uh, was murdered apparently in front of one of his stores uh, and, and died uh, yesterday or dad died this weekend on Sunday. And I just, you know, I just want to say rest in peace. Uh, prayers go out to his family. 
Nipsey Hussle, I don't know if folks know, but had to me one of the best, if not the best albums to come out. It was called Victory Lap in 2018. And the thing about Nipsey Hussle is he was very concerned about the community. I'm not going to say he was completely just a conscious rapper because I don't think he would call himself that. Um, And obviously talked about gang activity, stuff that I wouldn't agree with. But he was a rapper that put content into his music that was trying to teach young people about business and about kind of respecting themselves and how to hold how to hold themselves up uh, and and work with dignity uh, and diligence uh, in everything that they did. And so I I just want to give a shout out to Nipsey Hussle. uh, Rest in peace. Um, prayers out to his family. Yeah, and prayers for the community there uh, in in LA. Uh, he he was uh, he was he was a gift to the whole city, and so I know folks are 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 struggling with with uh, such a sudden loss. I mean, there was video of him. Uh, you know, he had just seen Texas Tech play in the final in the final four. You know, like it's 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 uh, it's a strange thing when you could see someone you know outliving their life. Uh, you know, in footage just 24 hours, 48 hours before, before they were, they were shot. Um, all right, folks, I, I think that's where we should, where we should end it uh, this week. Really love talking with you again, as always, uh, leave a review on iTunes. If you have the opportunity, make sure you spread the word about the podcast and always feel free to be in conversation with us on iTunes. This is the church politics podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks. You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right too with savings on miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing and grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants. Pick up a 50 quart bag now for just $10. Plus get Bonnie 2.32 quart vegetables and herbs three for $10 for a garden that's worthy of showing off. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6-5 while supplies last. U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Aloha and welcome aboard Hawaiian Airlines. Hawaii flies with us. Now, for a limited time, new Hawaiian Airlines World Elite MasterCard card members can earn 60,000 bonus Hawaiian miles after qualifying purchases. That's 60,000 bonus miles closer to the warmth and traditions of Hawaii. Apply today at HawaiianAirlines.com. Offer subject to credit approval. See application terms and conditions for complete details. Credit cards issued by Barclays Bank Delaware. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.